0: Hello, and welcome back to Jonathan's Bookshelf Presents Black King's Read. I want to thank those who have listened to the podcast thus far. Um, I just want to apologize, first and foremost. This recording was actually, the second part was actually recorded on Sunday. So it should have been out a long time ago. This is part two of my discussion with Amir. Um, We were talking about chapters four through five in Thomas Sewell's, black, rednecks, and white liberals. Um, This was actually recorded on Sunday, so it should have been done a long time ago. Um, I had just dropped the ball, procrastinating. I'm also doing other things. So once again, I do apologize about that. Um, As of Sunday, when we recorded, I've had (laughs) 11 listens so far. I don't know to what extent people were listening. Um, I'll have to check this out later. Like I said, I'm new to podcasting, in fact, um, I want to apologize again, I did not record my discussion with Amir for this recent one, I should have, but I apologize I didn't. Um, most likely I'm gonna go back and edit the discussion because um, sometimes his feed cut out, um, sometimes there was dead air, it was just, it, it's, it's okay, but it could be better on my end. Um, also, just want to give a little disclaimer, for those who don't know thomas sewell is a conservative economist so we're just even though we're discussing this book our views and opinions don't necessarily align align with his it's just that for this the purpose of this podcast is for black men to think outside the box maybe not the next um not the next episode which i already have an interview lined up um with another friend of mine. That should be coming out on Wednesday. But um, I think the one after that, I will be discussing the purpose and the mission behind this podcast and the reason why I'm doing it. Also, by then, which is like I said, the next two weeks, uh, I'll have more uh, ways of getting a hold of me as far as getting feedback and all of that. But right now, I'm just releasing the podcast um, and I'm doing it now because I wanted to get it out before the weekend and also my friend who I will be doing the discussion with is his his birthday was two days ago and I'm actually running late for his party so with that being said just sit back relax and enjoy the podcast Um, like I said um, right now it may not be at its best but I will go back and edit this so it'll be much more shorter and much more easier once again thank you And enjoy the podcast. I'm back with Amir to discuss the remaining portions of Thomas Sewell's Black Rednecks and White Liberals. For those who missed it, the first podcast had chapters one to three. So if you missed that, just go back, check that out. We're discussing chapter one to three. This one we're discussing the remainder of the book was chapter four to six. Chapter four to six is Germans and history, black education, and history versus vision. Before again, um, in the words of the great Jay-Z, allow me to introduce myself. Go ahead, Amir, and introduce, introduce yourself to the people.
1: Hey, my name's Amir. You kind of cut out on the last podcast, but the way that you can reach me is on Twitter, At Money Mirror Weather. Yeah, I'm just a social commentary person that does a lot of political work and social work out in the Bay Area.
0: Awesome, awesome. And also, his contact information will be in the podcast show notes as well. And if you're on Twitter, I would suggest that you follow him as well. He gives a lot of good information, uh, a lot of great points of view. Uh, Like I said, they'll definitely be in the show notes. So, Amir, when I was reading Germans and History, the book, well, first of all, the book begins by explaining what a Black redneck and a white liberal is. But Mm -hmm. then he goes back and he talks about Germans and their history. And Mm -hmm. from what I'm gathering, the point that he's trying to make is he's comparing African Americans in the United States to Germans in Germany. And he begins by talking about how Germans have this Affluential society They were smart They were brilliant They were industrious Mm -hmm. And this is before The Holocaust And One thing And it's funny Because I was just watching I talked about this In the last podcast I was just talking about How um, I went to go see Fahrenheit 11.9 And even Michael Moore Talks about How The Germans Were these Brilliant people And then all of a sudden You have the Holocaust Mm -hmm. And Did you also see The parallels In Black Americans With the Germans Before the Holocaust
1: No so this is one of the one of the points where I, I really disagree with Thomas, but okay. one thing that I, I think that he kind of missed with describing here, he might have described, maybe I overglanced it, but the reason why the the Holocaust happened. So one of the negative inputs of Dr. Soule's work is that he never really goes into the whole German and Jewish issues that would happen into in Germany. He goes into it a little bit about like Hitler and first world war and stuff like that mm-hmm. but with what a lot of people try to realize is that the holocaust was able to take place because they went through a deep recession so when the economics of the country was messed up that was the way that hitler was able to come to power they did have a lot of great things in germany you know that's how they had the first freeway system actually the autobahn and it had superior weapons and technology be compared to America. And the war really changed everything for that. And that's how we became who we were in this country and the world leader, I suppose. But they did have a lot of great things that they built there. But what America was like, have African Americans in this country ever had the same amount of success as like the native Germans in their country? But it kind of makes sense because if you're German in Germany, like, are you really a subgroup of people within that that society, so it's like, I, I don't get where he was going with that.
0: He didn't get into it in this book, but African Americans have made a lot of contributions to innovation, whether it's the light bulb, the stoplight, and right. then there are the, the contributions that they have made that have gone unknown mm-hmm. that we don't even know about. Absolutely, because one thing I like that he does is give a context of where the Germans came from, who they are, and that there were there's a difference between a German-Jewish person and a Russian-German and the Baltic German, that there was different types of Germans. Right. That- handout, I didn't see, I have to with you, I did not see a comparison between African Americans and Germans. I definitely saw American. In fact, on page 187, this is where I had cringe, and this is the, the point that Michael Moore was making. It says this, what did putting Hitler in power say about German people? Strictly speaking, it could reflect only that those Germans who voted Hitler into office in a democratic election after he seized dictatorial powers. Hitler never received a vote from a majority of the citizens of Germany, even to be put into office as a chancellor, much less as a dictator. The millions of Germans outside of Germany, of course, Had no part in this in any way. Yet, when all was said and done, there was, there could be little question that Hitler's massive support in Germany reached levels of adoration seldom seen in any other country before or since. How much of that support was for the Nazi ideology and its known agenda, much less for its hidden agenda that unfolded later to shock and outrage the world. Right. When I read that part, I cringed. Right. And one thing that he made, and we'll talk about this later, but one point that he Made was that history is something that we learn from. History is repeated. It's like what I just read, like, that's what just happened two years ago. Exactly what happened.
1: Maybe. So it's very interesting. I know they like to make the comparison between like Trump and Hitler, mm-hmm. but I don't see it just based on the fact that when Trump got in power, no one liked him from both sides. Right, right. It was Republicans that hated him, it was Democrats that hated him. But one thing he did have, you know, I guess that is similar to Hitler is that he did have the people inside who felt as though they were getting messed over by the Jews in Germany. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, <laughs> I'll, I'll just leave it at that. I don't, I, I don't want to do it. I, I, I know where you're going with
0: that. I know exactly where you're going with that. But and it's not just one group of people that felt like, right. it, as, as a plurality, Trump voters, I think majority felt like that they were being messed over by the
1: establishment. Right, um, and it's true. Mm-hmm. But you know, and and that's the kind of thing what happened to Germany, right? Like
0: mm-hmm.
1: at least. For the most part of here in America, a lot of people were getting screwed over by the, the establishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that's partially part of the role why Obama was elected. People got <laughs> under the Bush administration and he sought to put in his so-called outsider into the to the biggest seat. So Obama, he was the most unqualified president of all time because he only served two years as a junior senator. Mm-hmm. So just put this black guy in with these great ideas and maybe and it got worse for a lot of people. Over the same period of time that Trump was the president, he kept telling people, I'm trying to tell you, it's, it's these people that's doing this, that, and the third. And then by the time it came, the people voted for him. It wasn't the elitist that got him into the office, sort of like Hitler. Because remember, Hitler waited his turn. People knew about him and things that he wanted to do until it was time for him to run, you know, as you know, the president or whatever.
0: Well, unfortunately, <laughs> it is true that Trump did not win the plurality of the vote. Right. Right. So that's why our friends are like, we all know that he won because of the electoral college. Even though the Democrats had could have abolished it, they chose not to because they liked the system. When it, the part where he said the millions of Germans outside of Germany, of course, had no part in any of this. My first thought was border suppression. Right. <laughs> Whether that's people who decided not to vote or people who couldn't vote or people who did vote in the Rosemary County. That's one thing I thought of. And also, and, and I'm glad you brought up that point about Obama, because I, I forgot that I was looking at the percentage, but I forgot to look it up later. I think it's like 40-something percent of people voted for Obama twice, voted for Trump. Absolutely. So people say, oh, you know, you, you didn't like Obama. So it's like, no, that's not true. And remember, in Get Out, that scene where the guy kept on saying, the guy the girl said, yeah. I voted for Obama twice.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll vote for him a third time if I could.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: And that's people's way of
0: saying I'm not a racist. <laughs> that's a whole other discussion. But Germany, it was just amazing that these people were brilliant. They were smart. And one of the reasons why I started this podcast is because I wanted specifically black men to think more outside the box. That's why I'm, um, that you are reading this book and I, and it forced me to read this book because the purpose of this podcast is not to say, well, this person's right. That person's wrong. Is Correct. to think what other people are outside the box because if you don't do that, then you don't grow as a person. But I'm sorry, back to Germany. One thing that he does is he he talks about nativism, how he saw the correlation with nativism in Germany compared to the United States. And a lot of it, I didn't know this actually. Let me read this. Um, page 177. In 1892, for example, street signs in Prague have been written in both in German and Czech, were changed to become exclusively Czech. Group identity movements were not confirmed to checks, but by enemies, but led to intelligentsia, including students and lawyers, a number of the groups in the whole housework of empire. And this was really talking about identity politics and how mm-hmm. that plays a part in Germany. Because I didn't know actually in this book that marrying somebody who's German and marrying somebody who was Jewish was actually against the law. So it had its own misclassification. We had ours for almost a generation. Do you think this chapter was important for this book? No.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No. I'm I'm, I'm Um, trying.
0: I'm trying to find a correlation. Okay. So right.
1: So. right. That's why like this this chapter was weird for me because I'm like okay why are we talking about what's going on in Europe and their differences between you know their mm-hmm. their different tribes or whatever that's going on in Europe like if if we're gonna stick to the narrative for like black redneck behavior and white liberalism okay fine. But then he kind of went off the rails and started talking about Europe and some of the problems that Europe faced and what led to their collapse. To me, I, I didn't see the correlation between that and the Black community in America. Because the Black community in America is, is so unique that you can't really compare it to other countries. The the only similarities that I could possibly say, if you do want to compare Black Americans to other countries mm-hmm. is if you compare their Blacks to Blacks in America. And... This may be a a discussion down the line, but this is part of my personal theory from reading this book, is that the increasing crime problems that's in Canada now is correlated to the, the ignorant Black Bama culture that's being imported into Canada. So... As Canada is becoming more involved with hip-hop, it's, no, it's common sense to me that the violence is starting to increase and shootings are starting to increase. Because now they're starting to take on this the identity of the the Southern culture that's become so popular in the mainstream media through hip-hop. So that's a discussion down the line.
0: I see. I, you know what I think he's doing? When he's comparing the two, I think he's talking about white liberals. Okay. I, that's what, I, now when I'm thinking about it, because, you know, this this podcast comes from an African-American male point of view, but this book is addressing both black people and white people, so this right. is his way of explaining to white people what's going on by liberals, because these people, by definition, are liberals, uh-huh. Germans. So, in their liberalism comes nativism, and then comes fascism. So, right. he's giving right. into. to White liberals, hey, you think you're so open-minded, so free that anybody that you just allow into your party or into your your circle can take over and wreak havoc,
1: right? I mean, there, there's another book, but I, I don't know if you would like this too much. It's way written in like such an academia way. The only reason I bought it was because I heard great reviews about it, how liberalism fell, But he goes into, you know, the definition of what liberalism is and how it's evolved over time. And it was spot on. It's just that it's very hard to read because he writes it in such a academia way. Like people like us can dissect it and understand what he's saying because we have been trained classically in these type of issues but to the average reader they're gonna be like yeah i don't know what this guy's talking about but Mm -hmm. when he talks about like liberalism he's saying that the way that it's been formulated in america that it can't survive because you know eventually they'll start to get to a point where degenerate behavior overtakes you know what's actually good so then like really good behavior with moral foundation becomes uh considered as like something that's conservative when it's really not. Whereas though, this liberalism is becoming too extreme and that's becoming a norm. So it's extremism and like cultural Marxism that's really taking place in that liberalism. I think the book is called How Liberalism Failed.
0: I just have to look it up right quick. I think it's called Why Liberalism Failed by Patrick Denis.
1: Yeah, he's a professor somewhere.
0: And it's funny because actually the book that's on my list to read is Listen Liberal by Thomas Frank. His book really comes from, explaining to the Democrats you know what's going on with the liberals of the society and how mm-hmm. they need to wake up and pay attention but yeah. let's see why liberalism failed is no subtext after that interesting so absolutely mm-hmm. we should have made this transition we talked about education oh, oh
1: wait come on One thing, to say one other thing people do not forget that hitler was in fact a liberal he mm-hmm. was not a conservative he was a liberal
0: exactly and actually in going to the next chapter black education Mm. One thing that he points out is that there is a, I want to make sure that that's in the right chapter. He does point out that there's no history about imperialism, Western imperialism, and that we're missing that component in our history. Without learning about that, That might be actually in chapter six, I might be wrong. That's something that's not missing, but he is a chapter with going back to black education, mm-hmm. he talks about Dunbar High mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C. That, when I first read it, it was confusing me because he gives a pretty strong argument about, because I knew where he was going when he started giving the time periods between 1871 and 1955. I'm like, okay, Brown v. Board of Education was 1954. So I'm like, okay, I see where he's going with this. So he gives a strong argument for why desegregation actually worked in certain areas. But then when he explained the collapse of Dunbar High, Mm -hmm. I was like, wait a minute, because for those who don't know, Dunbar High was a high achieving high school for for black kids in D.C., actually in and around D.C. Dunbar High was technically a magnet school because it was only Mm -hmm. three high school, four high schools in Washington, D.C. Three of them were white and one was black. And Dunbar was a black high school. But it was a school, a public high school where. Kids were sent from all over. So it was a high-performing, high-achieving high high school. But to appease the um, decision of Brownview Board of Education, the D.C. school school board decided to go ahead to allow neighborhood kids inside of the school. And the neighborhood around Dunbar was was a slum, basically. It was run down. So when they let the, the kids in from the neighborhood, all of a sudden, the value of Dunbar High went down. Mm-hmm. And when I when I read that, I remember as most as as I said to y'all at the beginning of the podcast, me and Amir both went to Cheney University, graduated in two thousand fifteen. Before I went to Cheney, I also went I also went to two other HBCUs: Delaware City University, which is my family's legacy, and Southern University. For those who don't know, Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, is in is like in the north northern part of Baton Rouge. Behind Southern University is the Yes. And mm. and also, I visited Bethune-Cookman mm. College, and I was like 16 years old. It's an immaculate campus. It's beautiful. But all you got to do is take turn over to the right, and you see the slums. Mm. And it's interesting, and I thought about that. And I remember one of the issues that I was putting to one of my college professors was Tuskegee. He got Tuskegee Institute, a up-and-coming university, surrounded by a very depressed, impoverished area, which is Tuskegee, Alabama. Mm-hmm. So the question that I had was, if you had a, a high achieving, high performing high school in an area where the kids were not high, were, were in poverty, were not educated, as Thomas Sewell would say, they're black rednecks. Mm-hmm. I was like, where, where were these kids going to get an education? Then I realized, and I might be wrong, they basically were not being educated. Yeah,
1: I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, where were those kids going? But his his greater point to that was that once you start letting those redneck kids into the school with the intelligent kids, it's going to pull down the intelligent kids, and I've seen it a lot. My my experience is unique with public schools in Philly, whereas though I never went to a neighborhood school. So fortunately for me and my brothers, was that we were able to go through this thing in Philly They call it like a feeder system. So when I was in like kindergarten, a teacher, you know, pulled my mom to the side and was like, hey, your kids are performing well they shouldn't go to like these community schools because we lived in a really bad community especially at that time and i I don't know the process behind it but we were able to go to to a school that was in like the northeast so we would get picked up and bused all the way to the northeast even though Mm. we lived in germantown and these schools were like really really good and it was super diverse at the time to those who don't know anything about philly is that philly is about the fourth or fifth most segregated city in america Mm So we were living, of course, a lot of black people living in like these poor communities. Going through the feeder school, I started going to school with like white kids from the Northeast, Indian kids from the Northeast, Asian kids from the Northeast. And this was like the cream of the crop, basically. So we were all in there bouncing these ideas and things off each other and not acting up and stuff like that. Of course, you had fights here and there because they were kids. You know, mm-hmm. and that's going to happen when anytime you have children involved. But you really started seeing a stark difference by the time I went to high school. In high school, I started looking at what was going on to like my neighborhood school and people who didn't go to the super diverse school that I went to, where it was you know the people who had a long track ahead of them for like college and success and things like that. Just out, out of
0: curiosity was your was your neighborhood
1: school Germantown High or um, King High? So I so I moved around middle school. To actually live in like sort of kind of the Northeast, but okay. well, I, I lived down the street from Frankfort High, and where all my cousins went. So my cousins and them, they all went to Frankfort High, where I got on the bus and I went up to Northeast. Northeast and Frankfort High are totally different schools, mm-hmm. so all the neighborhood kids they all went off to Frankfort, and they all did really bad. But I went up to Northeast, and Northeast had like the state of the art football field. Mm-hmm. We had like a STEM program in there, like it was all that. So I can see what he's saying about Dunbar, because for one, I read this in a few other books too. So Harold Cruz talks about this implorably equal, where he talks about Dunbar being like one of the best uh, high schools for black kids until desegregation happened. And then all the black kids had to go there. There's another book called Disintegration, where he talks about the differences and black people from different levels. And he talks about Dunbar again, about the success of Dunbar until... Desegregation happened. Dunbar was really killed by the lack of progress by the greater black community. So you're gonna have some black people that's like really wanna do things. But if you over, you overwhelm them and outdrown them with a bunch of people that don't want to do nothing, it's just gonna pull them down.
0: And just so we are clear, in the book he said before people assume it, he says the precedent, letting let them let know and I'll read the, I'm gonna read this from page two or four. It so happens that there was evidence uh on the occupations of the parents of the children at the school as far as back as early as 1890s. As of academic year 1892, of the known occupations of these parents, there were 51 laborers, 25 messengers, 12 mm-hmm. janitors, and one doctor. Mm-hmm. So the kids and also another thing that he addresses, a relative, this is page 205. A relative stereotype is that the children who went to Dunbar High were light-skinned descendants of the Black elite that derived from the Mississippi assassination during the era of slavery. So those are two myths already broken down two that people thought, well, maybe Dunbar was for was for this type of students and that type of students. No, excuse me, not this type of students. I mean, they came from this type of household. They came from a middle-class household. No, they came from low-class and middle-class, so both. And mm-hmm. He, I mean, he really broke broke this down that it wasn't the, the households they came from, per se. It wasn't if they're if if, if they are um, light skinned, fair skinned, or anything like that. It was from what I'm from what I gathered. It was the drive for education because then he broke down other groups. He talks about right. the Jap- the first the first generation of Japanese Americans um, were the kids, they perform very high, but their parents couldn't speak English. Right. And the first and for Dunbar, a lot of these students, either parents were either former slaves or the first generation post-slavery, although they may not be able to read or write, there was this high expectation for education, this respect right. to have education, to get the, to get education. Um, so, and then he actually he talks about um, a suburb in Shaker Heights, Ohio, which is a suburb of, I believe, Cleveland, and mm-hmm. where these black kids, they come from a middle-class background, but their reading scores and their math scores are low because they don't have the drive or the initiative to push for an education because, hey, they, their parents are doing very well. Why should I care? And mm-hmm. that's that was the premises that he was trying to make. In his book and I'm glad he broke that down because oftentimes and he also you know dispelled the myth of more resources uh so not more resources more money being pumped into the education system he was like hey the teachers got paid the same amount as white teachers and mm-hmm. the teachers at Dunbar High would actually stay even after retirement but mm-hmm. once they integrated the local students into the school they took the retirement, it was like, We're out of here. Mm-hmm. And that just blew my mind. Yeah,
1: um and that and that goes back to what we talked about earlier in the last podcast about the mass influx of uh, the black rednecks that came up north. Whereas though You know, those were there before they had a different culture and a different value system. So Mm -hmm. now, you know, once you just let anyone come in, it's just going to ruin things because the resources are being diverted. People are looking like, okay, what can we do to accommodate people instead of just, you know, having a heavy hand and saying, look, we're not going for this type stuff. You know, after a while where they couldn't be more restrictive about who they admitted to the school and they started just admitting anyone, of course, it was going to go down because... Of their co would with Praguson just ruined the school and I even seen that even in today in some cities whereas the the resources really don't matter I did a I did a project um my first year in grad school about given access to early childhood uh education we did this big giant breakdown about like revenue and things like that and we picked the city and the city that we picked was uh newark new jersey and mm-hmm. what we found out was that the schools in low-income communities were actually receiving more funding than the schools that were in the affluent community but was doing way worse than the schools in you know in the affluent community even though they were receiving more funding especially per pupil mm-hmm. so you know it wasn't in fact oh yeah but you know it's 30 kids to a classroom. And it's like, well, you can break that down. And the kids were still receiving more funding than those in the fluent community. So it's more so about the culture that was being practiced outside of the classroom that's impacting these children more than the schoolroom itself. And,
0: and he also talks about, as far as the high school goes, he mm-hmm. even, he one thing I don't like is when people talk about the problem and they don't create solutions. What happened was, and we see this even today, administrators would come in and they say, okay, you need to do things this way, this way, this way, this way. And most of these administrators have never taught anything in their whole lives. They give teachers these rules these regulations and these standards that are unattainable or irrelevant. And the point he mm-hmm. makes is that if you let the teachers just teach like they're supposed to teach, or they felt, then the students will succeed. He actually, I thought that was funny, he actually brings up charter schools and how Mm -hmm. they do things differently. And he also talks about a school in L.A. where the principal took over and was like, okay, we're going to do things by this standard, this in words They got rid of all the standards that the, L.A. Unified put on them and said, no, we're going to do things this way, this way, this way. Mm-hmm. They tried to get that that principal fired, but the parents would not let them have it. I think, okay, this is what she did. Basically made the students learn English. She got rid of the English as a language prerequisite that the L.A. Unified right. put on. She's like, no, 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 everybody is going to learn English, and English right. is going to be their main language. The school board didn't like it, but the, the parents said, no, keep her. We like her. She's doing a great job. And she was able to keep her job because of it. And in one instance, he said that the system failed the schools by not letting teachers do their job. And if we just let teachers do what they've been trained to do, then students will succeed.
1: Right. I mean, that's, so I've seen like a a bunch of Thomas uh, Soul videos and I think, that's one of the things that he despises most about white liberals is the fact that they have this, as he calls it, um, expectations of low performance. Mm-hmm. So he says that all all the white liberals believe that black people can't succeed. So just dumb down the metrics and dumb down the things we'll teach them because they won't be mm-hmm. able to, to raise up and acquire these skills anyway. So let's just dumb it all down and then pass them through instead of just raising expectations and saying no you have to score this or you have to learn this. And if you don't learn it, you won't be successful. So they're putting like these kid gloves on to the most, to the people that need the the skills and the services the most to see in the country. Because, you know, if you go to an HBCU, you'll hear this. is that mm-hmm. you have be is better than anybody else. So what's happening in the education system and the primary system is that they're actually teaching the kids that, Oh, it's not true. You can learn at your own pace and this. And by the time you know, you're like twenty years old, and you can't even read.
0: And that is definitely true. I skipped over the part we talks about black colleges, but he's talking about white colleges in this in this sense. It is and this is page two thirty nine. The problem was not confined to colleges with very high academic standards. When top tier colleges and universities accepted black students who met the normal qualifications for secondary institutions, similar to pressures led second tier institutions to accept black students who would normally qualify for third-tier colleges and universities, and so on down the line. So basically, each school kept on lowering their standards. This is admitting Black students into PWIs, predominantly white institutions. They kept on lowering their standards each time to let in Black students instead of that, he says, and this happened in the 1960s. Before that, Mm -hmm. when um, white colleges were accepting Black students like Oberlin and Case Western Reserve, they had to meet the same criteria as other students, regardless of race.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, as this goes to the point, right? Like, no one really likes to talk about this, is the fact that there were actually Black kids that went to these PWIs mm-hmm. during the earlier parts of the, of the century. Mm-hmm. And it's because they were so good that the schools couldn't deny them. It was like, man, we really don't want to admit this Black kid, but damn, he's good. So we have to. But now it's like, we can just dumb the kids down and send them somewhere else and make money off them. And then when they go to the workforce, they don't have the skills. So then they're strapped with debt and they can't do anything. So that, this is the most insidious plan. And that's why I don't believe in the whole, you know, oh, you know, we'll just open up this college access to this person because they need it. It's like, well, are they good enough to go, go to college? We're the guideline for this. We open up so many colleges just to get people thinking that they need to go to these colleges. And the fact is... They're really not good enough to go to college.
0: And to dispel one myth, a lot of people think that the reason why Thurgood Marshall went to Howard University is because he didn't get accepted to University of Maryland when he wanted to go to law school. The truth is that he did not apply to University of Maryland because he knew he wouldn't get in because he was black. When it comes because Maryland was still somewhat the South, the purpose and there was a case in Brown Board of Education when a young man who was trying to get into University of Maryland law school, was denied and told to go to, um, which is now UMES University of Maryland Eastern Shore. Mm-hmm. I think it's called Princess Ann Academy, something like that. He was told to apply there because it was equivalent, but it was later in the case was made that it was not. It was actually inferior to University mm-hmm. of Maryland's law school. So the whole separate but equal that's where it could be challenged but we know that thomas was talking specifically about the north and not the south Mm -hmm. and also one thing that i and this is what really blew my mind and actually i need to look this up right quick to make sure i'm correct about this in the book he talks about how historically black colleges we well we know historically black colleges did not start out as college um so this was not a necessarily a secondary education this was their only education Mm -hmm. And what really made me sad is that I shouldn't put our school on blast like this, but I'm going to (laughs) have (laughs) to remedial education was good for, I would say, up until 1960s, up until Mm the 1960s, um, and some predominantly white institutions had remedial courses, but then they got rid of them. And then and, and then you saw the emergences the emergence of community colleges. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I said I want our school out on blast is because even at our school, the first historical black college founded in 1837, they still have remedial math and remedial reading. I'm like mm-hmm. who and I remember I I spoke to the when the dean was there. I spoke to her about this and she totally agreed. And it's like we still have to have this low expectation that we have to, like you said, dumb down our curriculum or help people get to the next level when it's like no one, a lot of major universities don't even do that anymore. But for some reason, Black people and white liberals feel like, well, you know, let's do a no child left behind sort of thing. And then when they leave out of college, they're not prepared to deal with the real world.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, we kind of seen that happen too with the Obama administration, with the Common Core thing, right? Mm -hmm. But... I, I can't. I can't talk too bad about the remedial courses. I will give a disclaimer. I was in a remedial math course, um, but not reading and writing. Uh, but mainly math. You know, it's my my biggest struggle. But yeah, I, I, I feel that though. And even once they pass those remedial courses, I feel mm-hmm. as though they're still not ready.
0: Still not ready, and you still have to do your other prerequisites. Yeah. See, when I transferred into Cheney, I had an in Calculus One, so I didn't need. And right now I'm in Calc 2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, so, yeah, people say, oh, you got that. I'm like, trust me. Yeah, Calc 2, I, I'm, I'm trying not to cry. I'm yeah. trying to... Well, I, it, but- I
1: will say that I think it's very important, but this goes back to, like, primary education, whereas the, I don't believe that Black kids are getting the best primary education when it comes to the science and math. Absolutely,
0: Absolutely.
1: And, and I think yeah. this is because just going based off least my experiences through the public school, even though I went to a very good public school is that the teachers don't do a good enough job of telling the kids why it's important. Mm-hmm. So when we were growing up, the, a lot of teachers would say, Oh, you know, you it's just to learn, you know, you need this to learn. Instead of just saying, look, if you don't learn this stuff, you won't get a high paying job. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like, Oh, snaps. Like if they would have said that to us as kids, it was like, look, you're going to need this because this is the future. Instead of just saying, hey, man, it's, it's just nice to learn it. Because if you tell black kids that, hey, if you learn this stuff, just, just sell them a dream, basically. Be like, oh, yeah, if you learn this stuff, you can go out and live in Hollywood. You can live in New York. You can make all this money and that? And I guarantee you, a lot of these black kids are like, for real? Like, I can be rich. If I learn math, I can learn science. But if you tell them, hey, it's, you know, it's, it's just a cool thing to learn, they're going to check out. Because a lot of those kids, they grew up in poverty already, and they're looking for a way out. And most of them
0: can already do the math in their head. I remember my goddaughter, she told me a long time ago that she wanted to go to Clark Atlanta to pursue acting. And I mm-hmm. said, okay, no problem. I said, that's cool. Then she changed her mind. I was like, why? She said, because I don't want to be in student loan debt for the rest of my life. Because mm-hmm. I already know that my jobs will be scarce. You know, acting is kind of finicky. But I know that Clark Atlanta is, a, is an expensive school. And I've seen firsthand what happens when you go to school and you try to get an education. You end up in debt for the rest of your life. And mm-hmm. I don't want to do that. So kids are even now being discouraged from going to school to pursue the higher education because of what they see the generation before them go through. Right. And that's that really took me. Back. So right now we're trying to figure out ways for her to go to school without having to pay, you know, for, without having to take out any type of loans. Also in the book, one thing that he actually discusses, and I thought that was it was weird. Now he does discuss Booker T. Washington, mm-hmm. but then he also discusses the boys and mm-hmm. their correlation. And we know that the Washington versus the boys argument goes pretty long, pretty lengthy. You know, that could be debated all day, every day. Right. But he does, one thing he does is he talks about their similarities, as much as I appreciate really right. how Booker T. Washington, he did have the right idea, that his thing was to appeal to apathetic whites in order to build these higher institutions of learning that help Black people to become more productive in society, where Du Bois, he talked about, especially the Phil Negro, he talked about the issues with the African-American as a sort of the Negro at that time that he referred to as being slip, shiftless and lazy. Now, if I'm not mistaken, those type of people that he was talking about are the people, the black rednecks that came from the South to Philadelphia. Definitely. That's that's what I kind of got from that. But and then he almost tried to mention um, Marcus Garvey. I'm like, we're not going to get to that, bro. You are going somewhere totally different with that if you bring me <laughs> to the mix. But um, also, one thing I have to bring this up, he talks about, he dispels the whole myth of black kids, black students needing a, needing black representation, needing a black teacher, needing a black administration. Mm -hmm. Like he even, he, because how many times have we heard that the reason why these kids don't succeed is because they don't have a black teacher in the classroom. They're not enough black male teachers. There are not right, enough black administrators. In fact, I would argue that black administrators actually make the schools and I think that's what he said in this book, they actually make the schools worse than better from my listen. <laughs> like like it the kid training, training. that ripped off all the we students.
1: That, remember the kid that ripped off all the students at Howard? He was going on vacations and all yes. that? Yes.
0: Secure the bag, his name I forgot his name, but yes, I remember.
1: Yeah. But no, i <laughs> I'm I am glad that he brought that up because um I always tell people um, outside of my family, two of the most important people that have progressed me professionally and acad- academically were two old white ladies. So, the one the one person was uh let me guess, man
0: speaker?
1: Huh? Yeah, man speaker. <laughs> man, speaker. Um, man speaker is a old white woman from Kansas. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, <laughs> but, but she was very helpful. She directed me my entire time through undergrad. Um, without Dr. Mass here, I don't know if I'll be living out my dream the way I I was supposed to live out my dream.
0: And we both attended this um, HBCU, the first HBCU. And my favorite professor and one who really helped me to get on to the path that I'm going towards, he was actually Syrian. Not only was he uh, Dr. Muhammad, not only was sorry, Dr. Muhammad Safadi, not only was he, he is he Syrian? He's not even a full professor. He's an adjunct. Mm. He was an adjunct professor. I had him, I had like 10 classes for the whole few years I was at Cheney. I, I had 10 to 11 classes by him out of all my professors. That's the most I had. So every semester I had two, one to two, maybe even three classes with him. And he was an adjunct. And he pushed me, his thing was, because, you know, at Cheney they give you this curriculum to say, okay, take this, 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 and this, this. He would tell me to take this class, this class, and that class. I'm like, okay, that's not part of my curriculum. He's like, take it anyway. Example, psychology. He was like, take psychology, take psychology. I'm like, why? I'm a business major. I don't care. I took sociology a long time ago. He was like, no, take it, trust me, you'll need it. And he was so right. I hated the course, but I, I, I hated that course. But it's funny, because now- you
1: have psychology? Huh? What did you have for psychology? Huh?
0: Have a psychology? <sighs> Barnes. But I had it online. It was online. It was during the summer. So I didn't do a face-to-face with Mr. Barnes, but I know I did not have Spears. Me and Spears... I I never
1: had that person either. That's not who you had? No, I had Dr. Green.
0: That's who I didn't have. Okay. I like the course itself. It's just that... And it's funny because at the the time... Let me say it like this. At the time, I did not like the course. Now I appreciate it because Mm. what I'll be studying is computational decision science and operations research, which does a lot of psychology I have a book on the brain. And it's like, all this time, this is what I should have been doing. And he told me to stay psychology as a business major because business right. psychology is a big thing. And he was so right about it. And I was like, thank you so much. And my other professors were like, the chair was like, oh, just 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 do what's just do on the paper. I'm like, no, it's out there. We got two classes in retailing. And I mean like brick and mortar retailing. I'm like, no one does that anymore. So right. it is, that is so true. And I still have a good relationship with Dr. Safaya still today. And I mean, I do have a relationship with our chair department, who's, who's Nigerian. But even going to HBCU, our favorite professors that really molded our careers were not Black people.
1: Right. Absolutely.
0: So even with our... Te- I mean, even, like I said, in the book, he says that, that just because that the students don't necessarily fare well when they have somebody that looks like them. And when it comes to administration, man, I'm telling you, this—how many times are you going to watch the news and see one HBCU go down because a president did something or or um, or a provost did this or? It's, it's just been happening every year, and it's always a black face in front of it. And yes, it, it happens to all colleges, but you know when it happens to, to us, especially as HBC grads, it hurts the most.
1: Right.
0: And and. and for this chapter, I will say that when it comes to education, it's not about money. It's not about economics. In, in the beginning, I thought it was about economics. It's the students, the students' motivation to achieve a higher education. How many stories are we going to read about where a child was homeless and, as a adult he's adopted because he had that drive in him to Correct. achieve a higher education? If that's created by now, outside influences by people, by mentors, by family, we don't know if that changes the dynamics, but it has to be within that person's. so it's individual, not necessarily something that's innate, Sort of. Mm-hmm. Now, okay. the last, chap- last chapter was history versus vision, and like yeah. I said earlier, is that from what I've got from this chapter, what he did in this last chapter, he started listening to other groups. So he talk, starts talking about the Scottish, the Japanese, and also the, uh, I think he said Indian too. i believe leave India. Mm-hmm. And he starts breaking these groups down. And looking at, at some point he does compare them to African Americans, at some points he, he doesn't. But from this chapter I'm getting that he's like, you have to look at the history of these people to understand where we're going to be going in the future for black rednecks and for white liberals.
1: Yeah, Um. just to sum up that culture, I mean, that, that the last chapter is basically just saying, yeah, black people, we're going to do something better. We got to change our culture. It, it was just one big comparison. It's like, look, this is how the Jews seceded. This is how the Japanese is here in America. This is how the Mexicans are doing it. Black people wake the hell up and change. <laughs> <laughs> that was basically his, his whole pitch for the last chapter. It was like, look, man, understand we've made great changes and great strides, but we're still not there. And, and the reason, partially part of the reason that we're still not there is because our culture just lags behind other cultures in this country. And until we change the culture then nothing is really much going to change for us on a larger scale.
0: Absolutely. And when it comes to change, we don't necessarily need a plurality of black people. We need just enough black people Mm -hmm. to make that change. Or as Dr. George Frazier once says, we just need enough black people to die. (laughs) (laughs) He's talking about people who sit who the average Black person watches at least 13 hours of television a
1: day. Oh, man, that's ugly.
0: And I was like, he's like, yeah, you need to die because you can't do nothing for us. And, <laughs> and also, one thing that I, I wanted, sorry, I meant to mention for Black education, there's one section that he says that I totally agree with. He says this: this is, this is on page 242. While no one can deny the existence of racial discrimination in employment, housing, and other areas, The assumption that the magnitude of employment discrimination can be measured by relative numbers of blacks in particular occupation ignores the huge quantitative and qualitative differences in education between blacks and whites, which exist in the past generations, often as a result of government discrimination and the provision of educational resources. And Mm -hmm. I just want to bring that up. And the reason I want to throw it out there is because he's not saying that, you know, that there were other factors, there are right. definitely other factors he's not because i want to put that out there because people there are people who listen right. to this podcast say well you had this going on you had that going on and then and, and he's not denying none of that he's not right saying that, that does not take an effect he's just saying that when you look at the differences there mm-hmm. really was not much of a difference particularly speaking from the north mm-hmm. when it came to that it was a result as of um, additional as educational resources being pulled, because we know that after Brown v. boy education, a lot of the, the schools that were public that were majority white became majority black because the white people pulled their kids out of school and they created private schools and in neighborhoods where that are run down that have a well currently even right now they have a lower tax base because mm-hmm. they can 't get the revenue from the taxes they don 't the money's not pulled doesn 't go towards the schools where where like I live not too far from the suburbs of Chicago. I see these big buildings, they have big huge football fields, but you look at the houses, they have a huge tax base. Mm -hmm. So, and I just wanted to bring that up, but sorry, back to the history. Black people, one thing about history is that it does repeat itself. Mm -hmm. And even right now, what we got going on in the country where we just have the gutting of voting rights act,
1: and... I, I, I think we'll talk about that off camera, but Okay. I think there's a reason behind that that's deeper than what's being discussed.
0: Okay. Well, then there's also the gutting of the change of uh, affirmative action.
1: I think they should get rid of it. Only, <laughs> only because it's not, it's not working the way it's supposed to be working. So
0: When it was implemented, it was changed and uh-huh. it became ineffective for Black
1: uh-huh. if, it so. was, if it was done the original way, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Uh, it right. would have been awesome right uh, mhm when I mean, you got people coming from china over coming and be like yeah I'm mm-hmm. a minority let me get some of that bread <laughs> and mm-hmm. they did. and it's like wait a second you didn't go through jim crow and mm-hmm. Red so how, how are you affected by past racial discrimination in america it's like no you don't get to eat off this law no I'm cool
0: absolutely and then they added white women in there and that was supposed, yeah. to, be it was supposed to be a joke but it actually <laughs> they put it in there so I, I agree with that. But then now we are now with this new Supreme Court, we don't know what's gonna happen to black people. And partially I blame the black church. Mm. <laughs> okay. I blame the black church. And that's a that's a whole other discussion for another time, but I blame the black church. The black church as a whole, but the majority of the black church, I blame mm-hmm. them. But that's another discussion. But black people, we have to be more educated about what's going on in our world and to our society. That's right. why Personally, I do recommend this book as a book you should read and you should learn from it. You don't have to take this. One thing I don't like is when people take lecturers, people in academia, even celebrities, as having the absolute truth. No right. one has the absolute truth. There are people who think that may he rest in peace, Dick Gregory was had absolute truth. I'm like he was a conspiracy theorist. He
1: did. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <Michael> <laughs> by laser, I was like, I don't know, dude. <laughs> I
0: mean. <he's, laughs> I mean, he was good for some things. Like some things, I'm like, okay, yeah, I can see you on that. But he would say something like, "What the? Okay." It's looking to me, go. Hmm, let me think about it. But there's some things like people stop saying, "Oh, Dick Gregory said it." No, no,
1: no. yeah. Well, you know, well, but, toward, towards his end, he became like the black Alex Jones.
0: He did. <laughs> he did. He did that. I, I would see those interviews that he would do, and I would just cringe. I was just like, oh God, he's just God. He's just God. Just, just, just give him up. Cause you, I've noticed that even these, even Farrakhan, I'm like, that doesn't sound right. I remember one time I, Farrakhan is the only person I can watch talk for four hours (laughs) straight. I said I literally watched him do a, it was (laughs) Saviors Day. He talked for four hours and I sat there and watched it the whole time, the whole speech. But even he says this, I'm like, huh. What? And if the, there are people who are like, yes, 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 and they, they just, just love it, but have a mind of your own, black people, black men. This even though this podcast is laid off for everyone, African American men, have a mind of your own. Do not be an absoluteist. Don't be like, oh, this person, he's speaking one hundred percent the truth. No, no what? one has one hundred percent the one hundred percent. Not even myself. No yeah. one does. Not even your not even you. You have to grow and educate yourself and read other points of views. Now there are some books I would not even read if you paid me to read them. Like really, what? Book? What happened by Hillary Clinton?
1: Oh uh, yeah, you're right.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, would, I mean right. my thing
0: is like the answer to the question or from the book. What happened, Hillary Clinton?
1: There we go. Done. <laughs> yeah, because she be was lying the whole time anyway, blaming everybody for her own fault. But. Yeah,
0: like no, re- yeah, and I, yeah, I heard the reviews. Now I will. I have. I think you know this, but I have read. Well, I didn't read it, but I listened to the audiobook, Unhinged by Amorosa. I will definitely discuss that book. Uh, it's, it's, oh, Jesus.
1: I don't know. I think she's I an did, opportunist.
0: I did too. I used to think that until I read the book. I okay. think, You know what? She is an opportunist, but she's an opportunist like me and you, uh-huh. not an opportunist that I used to say some mean things about how much of opportunist that she was. It turns out I was wrong. She is opportunist, but in the way, in the sense of I'm trying to eat, not in the sense of I'm trying to be rich because for, for real, for real, if she was a real opportunist, she would be married to a white man instead of a black preacher, unlike Kamala Harris, but
1: we're not going to go oh, there. Oh, Lord. <laughs> hey, man, I live in California. I can't say anything bad. I know. Y'all.
0: I know. I know. That's why <laughs> I said. We're not going to go there. But Emil will be back with us next month. We'll be discussing, let's see. I'm trying that book again. Harold Cruz's The Crisis of the Negro Intellect Intellectual.
1: Oh, yeah, I can't wait. A historical
0: analysis of... The Failure of Black Leadership. So, for those who are listening to the podcast now, I suggest you go ahead and start reading that book because that'll be coming up next month. Um, Probably, it'll probably be out the first week of November. No, second week of November. That podcast will be out. Go ahead and get started on that book. I'll be, hopefully, I have my website up by next week so you can leave your feedback, your comments, your questions. And we definitely want want to hear back from you. All right, until then. Thanks so much, guys. Y'all take care now. Bye. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I hope that you really enjoyed it. Um, As I said before, I will definitely go back and edit this. Um, Also, the next book that I will be discussing with my friend Mac is Clay Kane's Live Through This. Also, in the last podcast, if you didn't check that out, um, I said that I had taken um, Bill Cosby's book and I replaced it with a different book And Bill Cosby's book, um, Come On People. The problem is I found my list, my top 25 book list, and... <laughs> It was more than just his book. It was actually a couple books. I'm like, why is this book still on the list? I need to get this book off this list, and I need to replace it with something else. Um, as of now, I'll be replacing Bill Cosby's um, "Come On People" with Dr. Joyce Degru post traumatic slave syndrome. That's a book that I will be discussing most likely next year, and hopefully, uh, fingers crossed, I will get Dr. Degru on the podcast. So. Once again, thank you so much for listening. Um, Like I said, this is just going to get better and better. I'm learning as I go along. um, And I really hope that you stick in with me for the rest of the remaining of this podcast. Once again, take care. Y'all have a great day. Bye.